What I'm trying to say is uh, Donald Trump is presidential. He just happens to be running on the wrong continent. In fact, once you, once you realize that Trump is basically the perfect African president, <laughs> you start to notice the similarities everywhere, like the level of self-regard. I say not in a braggadocious way. I've made billions and billions of dollars. I made a tremendous amount of money. I'm really rich. I have a great temperament. They love me anyway. I don't have to do this. I've done an amazing job. I was born with a certain intellect. God helped me by giving me a certain brain. I'm not going to give you a question. You are fake news. Are mm-hmm. you going to include the Congressional Black Caucus and the Congressional Well, Black I would. Caucus. I tell you what. Do you want to set up the meeting? Do you want to set up the meeting? No, no, no. I'm, are they I'm, friends I'm, of I'm yours? No, I'm, get I'm, a, set up the I meeting. I know some of them, but I'm sure Let's go set up a meeting. I would love to meet with the Black Caucus. I think it's great. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what the hell is going on? You're listening to The Commute, the show about big ideas from the South African perspective. I'm Jessica Van Anselen, saying hello from a freezing Johannesburg. To the vast majority of the world outside America, the election of Donald J. Trump has been very difficult to understand. How could a racial nationalist with the tendency to lie with a straight face, dodgy business dealings and a passion for money laundering, sexist views on women, and a need for a dedicated television station whose sole mandate is sucking up to him, and a chilling admiration for Vladimir Putin, become the president of a major economy? Uh, Wait a minute. Hang on. Oh. Oh, sorry, sorry. That was my introductory blurb for Jacob Zuma. I've got my papers mixed up. So, Sorry, Donald Trump, yes. How could a racial nationalist with the tendency to lie with a straight face, dodgy business dealings and a passion for money laundering, sexist views on women, a need for a dedicated television station whose sole mandate is sucking up to him, and a chilling admiration for Vladimir Putin, become the president of a major economy? Ah, I see what's going on here. Right, okay. For us South Africans, we're still so punch drunk from the Zuma years that when Big Donny J proved that it is literally better to have a reality TV show host running the White House than a fully qualified person with a vagina, we were all just like, sit down America, have a beer, we'll tell you how this goes. Economics for losers. Global trade and alliances, that shit's just for the ladies. Managing international diplomats, is this going to cut into my sitting around time? Independent journalism, fake news. But unfortunately, Trump's brilliant brain has resulted in a few ideas which are not that great for South Africa. For starters, Trump has still not appointed an ambassador to South Africa. That's right, the embassy has had no ambassador since Obama appointee and all-round awesome dude, Ambassador Patrick Gaspard, departed in 2016. Secondly, Trump announced that African nations, and Haiti, are shitholes. But on the upside, according to Trump, America is a total shithole too, if not the biggest shithole of all. So maybe we shouldn't feel too offended, as we're in good company. Thirdly, he's introduced steel and aluminium tariffs. 10% on aluminium to be exact, and 25% on steel imports to the states. When these tariffs were announced, everyone rushed to America to negotiate for an exemption, including Rob Davies from our very own Department of Trade and Industry. Australia even used the golfing legend Greg Norman to court Trump to give them an exemption because Trump loves golf so much. And Trump did announce an exemption for Australia, as well as for the EU, Mexico, South Korea, Argentina, Brazil, and Canada. But not for South Africa. Shit. While South African steel exports represent less than 1% of US steel imports, the US takes 5% of our production. 
An estimated 7,500 South African jobs are dependent on US steel exports alone. And it gets worse. Just recently, Trump dropped the brain bomb that he's considering slapping tariffs on imported cars and trucks. At the moment, South African vehicle exports to America are duty-free because of a trade agreement known as the Africa Growth and Opportunity Act, or AGOA. So tariffs on our vehicle exports, nightmare in the making. Finally, America has said that it will cut both foreign aid and diplomatic assistance to countries which vote against it in the United Nations, of which South Africa is one of the worst offenders, apparently. If you go to politicsweb.co.za, you can access a statement put out by Trump's ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, issuing some threats to South Africa. I'll put a link to it in the show notes for this episode. In that statement, according to a list compiled by the US, South Africa voted with the US on nine occasions and against it 68 times. Along with other countries like North Korea and Cuba, it was singled out as one of the 10 countries with the lowest voting coincidence with the US. I needed to speak to someone who is as obsessed with Donald Trump as I am. And who better than former editor of the Mail and Guardian and all-round Trump expert Philip Van Nikek, who now lives and works in Washington, D.C. A small note on the sound. Philip was Skyping from what sounds like his favorite comfy chair during the interview, which means you're going to get some lovely creaking wooden sounds when he talks. Just think of it as us having a long conversation on rocking chairs on the porch, and it'll all add to the atmosphere. Philip Fanikak, so great to have you on the phone. Welcome. Hi, Jessica. You're in Washington, D.C. right now. Indeed. A lot of our listeners will know you, obviously, from your uh, illustrious career at the Mail and Guardian. But uh, what have you been up to in recent years? Okay, well, I, I run a consulting company out of, out of the U.S. Um, and the majority of the work that we do is essentially taking investors into the rest of Africa. So we do a little bit of work in South Africa, but mainly Nigeria, Zambia, um, I guess now Zimbabwe, um, you know, actually just about anywhere, you name it. Uh, and we have worked there in the past couple of years. So, yeah, so I think what we're trying to do is, is find a way for uh, companies from the US, Europe and elsewhere to kind of navigate into their way through Africa and make it more, uh, you know, easier for them to, to land and, and make the right kind of partnerships and the right kind of decisions about investment in, on, in the continent. Well, I mean, it's a really exciting time, exciting slash uh, terrifying time to be in the States. So Trevor Noah says that Donald Trump is America's first African president. But I was just saying, I think a lot of South Africans feel that we've already sat through nine years of the Trump movie in the form of our former president, Jacob Zuma. I mean, isn't Trump just Jacob Zuma light? Well, you know, that's for once in my life, I would say that uh, uh, Jacob Zuma is actually preferable to Trump, not only because he's no longer in power, and Trump unfortunately is in power, but because, um, and not only because Trump has power to, I guess, obliterate the entire planet if he really wanted to, because he has his finger on the nuclear button, um, but also because for all his faults and for all his, for all this terrible damage that he did to South Africa, um, Jacob Zuma just cannot compare to Trump in the stakes of uh, uh, egotism, narcissism, willful destruction of everything that his predecessors has built up, um, just the, the, the complete sort of corruption that now envelops um, this administration in Washington. And it's something 
you know, having been here through the sort of 2016 election and seen it, you know, kind of um, the warning signs, you know, even before the election and to see everything that was predicted, particularly by Hillary Clinton, um, actually not only come true, but but um, be fulfilled in the worst possible and imaginable way. Uh, it's it's actually quite shocking, Jessica. It really is, and and distressing. I mean, people around here. I mean, you know, Washington is a very democratic city, but uh, you know, normal human beings kind of walk around I and mean, they wake up at five o'clock in the morning and say, "Has he tweeted yet? You know, what what terrible things are going to happen? You know, gonna, is is he going to be saying today? Um, you know, it's just not normal, and it's a it's a, a really I think a uh, difficult time to be alive in the States, particularly for people that I know who are American, including my, my wife and partner who is, you know, living in a constant sort of state of, of, of trauma, just cannot believe that this has happened to the United States. The, the point that it is unbelievable is, is a key one. Did you think Donald Trump was going to win or were you as aghast as I was when you woke up that morning? No, I didn't think he was going to win. I actually... Um, I believed, you know, the people, the, not just the polls, but people, you know, who who had been through elections before, who said, "Don't worry," you know, the mark, the last Marquette poll out of Wisconsin had Hillary, I think, seven or eight points ahead. So while there was clearly some softening of support in the Midwest, and she was going to struggle, um, at the end of the day, uh, I felt she had enough to to get through, um, and I think that. Well, it was a staggering kind of like miscalculation by a lot of people. I do think that 10 days before the election, she had it in the bag. And I am one of those who believes that the Comey letter that he came out and said that he was reopening the investigation um, absolutely dominated all discussion in the week before the in the 10 days before the election. And there was no way to have any kind of rational discussion about policies or about, um, you know, the kind of things that uh, Donald Trump might do if he got into the presidency. It was all about Hillary's emails and a complete nonsense, a complete fiction, actually. And you've seen the inspector general's report today basically came out and said that the FBI investigation and finding on Hillary emails that there was no um, determination that, that she should not be prosecuted was absolutely correct. Um, and so that was that kind of nonsense issue absolutely uh, distorted the last, I guess, 10 days coming into the election. And I think that's that's essentially what handed it to him in the end. Yes, and it had a disproportionate effect on white female voters who some people feel sort of really swung the election because they, they felt that, you know, we can't really support someone who's being investigated by the FBI. Um, but now we know in retrospect that um, not only were the FBI looking at Hillary Clinton's emails, but they were in fact investigating the Trump campaign for a potential um, collusion or penetration by Russian foreign agents, which I will circle back to. But let's let's just stick with the election. Let's stick with Trump's um, election promise. You know, he campaigned on Make America Great Again. What does Make America Great Again mean for South Africa? Okay, well, first of all, I think, for Trump supporters, when he was talking about making America great again, he was talking about going back into the 1950s when um, you you could no longer you could not sort of um, even con- conceive of a black president. A woman knew their place. Black people knew their place. The United States of the 1950s was a very different kind of country, and a lot of 
elder white people wanted to go back to that. Um, now, one of the things that came up after this G7 summit that was recently in uh, in Quebec um, was one of the White House aides saying that, you know, basically what this means in a global sense is we're America, bitch. And I think that, frankly, there's always been an element of that in American foreign policy. Um, but still, America has seen itself um, in terms of uh, since the Second World War as, as being a kind of the predominant nation upholding the global international liberal, liberal democratic order. Admittedly, that was never perfect and there were terrible um, slippages in the Cold War. They supported dictators for strategic reasons to sort of attack, um, you know, the Soviet Union in the period of uh, communism. But I think that on the whole, there was an assumption, the default was that the United States was an upholder of a certain set of values. And that is very much kind of gone away now, or at least in the sort of Trump era. I think Trump sees none of that as being important. He has a, a zero-sum idea about what uh, global power means. What it means for South Africa is, well, frankly, we've heard his comments about Africa. The president tonight apparently uncorking another astonishing statement complaining to lawmakers in the Oval Office about protections for immigrants. Why do we want these people from, quote, all these shithole countries here? According to a Democratic aide familiar with the conversation, Mr. Trump was referring to African nations and Haiti before suggesting the U.S. should have more people from places like Norway, whose prime minister he met yesterday. We understand that he doesn't really, has never probably had half a thought about Africa, except that it is a continent on which... Uh, uh, filled with a lot of shithole countries, and if uh, uh, excuse my swearing, I don't know if you're going to blank that out. But uh, <laughs> no, we definitely won't. He said shithole, and we all say shithole. You know, in South Africa, you know, is generally sort of perceived to be a little bit different. But I think in terms of where American policy is at the moment, there's just not a lot of thought and not a lot of time given to um, you know anywhere in Africa, including South Africa. So I think America, this, this sort of uh, America first idea is really America kind of lording itself over its traditional allies in Europe and uh, people who kind of inhabit our continent uh, are just not even in the, you know, don't even get into the picture. If you want to kind of understand the world as Trump sees it, go and find out where he's built hotels. And in actual fact, he never built a hotel. He never, I think he might have gone to, to Zanzibar once to look at it. But um, in sub-Saharan Africa, he's, he's never visited. His sons came down to shoot elephants or whatever and, and buffaloes, shamefully. Um, but he's never taken a moment to sort of think about Africa. And look, we've got a situation where South Africa doesn't have an ambassador 18 months in. I think they might just have announced an assistant secretary of state for Africa. But the, the whole kind of department has been running on State Department for Africa, has been running on, uh, on temporary people filling positions that, uh, you know, without permanent appointments. Uh, a lot of ambassadors uh, throughout the continent have not been appointed. Um, so it's really just slipped Africa down to the bottom. And, uh, you know, which is a change actually from the last three presidents anyway. Um, uh, you know, Clinton uh, came to Africa. You know, he saw, uh, you know, there were a number of initiatives that he started on the African continent. George Bush, after he after his debacle and disaster in Iraq, saw that he could get some redemption uh, 
by, um, you know, dealing with uh, HIV AIDS on the African continent. The PEPFAR program, which has been enormously successful and which has pumped billions of dollars into free antiretrovirals on the African continent and in South Africa particularly has uh, actually led to an increase in life expectancy. Um, you know, that was, that was significant. And Obama, who, who was a son of Africa to some extent, um, you know, did have, an, you know, in, initiatives like Power Africa. He did go to Africa a couple of times. He made an important speech in Accra. I think from this guy, you're going to get nothing. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's a good thing to stay out of the crosshairs um, of, you know, an administration that doesn't mean well really towards anybody in the rest of the world. Mm. I always think about Obama's speech at Nelson Mandela's funeral, which you know he said was he felt was one of the most important speeches of his career, acknowledging what Nelson Mandela meant to him, and then we sort of contrast it with Trump's shithole comments, um, or or, um, or Nambia, you know, just just not having the basic courtesy of of sort of knowing which country is which, and right. and kind of outrageous. If we get to the hard edge of how this is affecting South Africa, there are two main stories which are in our headlines. The one is the Trump administration's decision to administer tariffs on steel and 10% tariffs on aluminium. And the other is the Trump Trump's sort of incomprehensible for me decision to pull out of the Iran nuclear deal. Um, because it's my understanding that South Africa at least used to get many of its um, petrol and oil reserves from Iran. I'm not sure if that's still the case. But so we have these two really huge uh, policy decisions and, and they don't look good for South Africa. Is that right? Right. Well, I think on the tariffs, and I mean, there's, an, there's another one that sort of threatens as well, and that's on potentially on automobiles. At the moment, automobiles are sort of, because uh, I think we, 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 uh, we export um, something like 50,000 vehicles, Mercedes and BMWs, to, to the United States um, every year. Uh, even though it's not the biggest slice of of our exports, it will certainly damage our automakers in the in the Eastern Cape. Uh, and as for the steel and aluminium, yeah, I mean, he's used a sort of a national security um, out to um, enforce these tariffs. And, and, and can you explain to our listeners why he's done that? Because it is actually intriguing that little bit of um, trickery. Well, I, I mean, in terms of the World Trade Organization rules, you can't just impose tariffs. You've signed up to agreements that, um, you know, basically commit you to uh, certain kind of like ceilings in terms of what tariffs you can impose on your goods. Uh, now, there are exceptions to those, and national security is an exception. Now, the reason why it's using national security is he's saying, well, I, uh, our, um, you know, Boeing and, and uh, you know, the companies that build jet planes, you know, we can't, you know, we've only got one proper aluminum manufacturer in the United States. So in fact, Canada is getting very hard hit by that as well. And Canada is fighting back because they've imposed targeted um, tariffs on goods that come from the United States in response. But South Africa doesn't have that kind of clout in the way that Canada has to um, possibly even hit back. So I think this could see uh, a lot of people in the steel uh, well, uh, and aluminum industries out of jobs up to, you know, potentially 10,000. And I think that's, that's tragic. It's almost like, a, you know, it, it's so unnecessary. It's so beyond anything um, to have done that. And, you know, I, the thing is that Trump doesn't really understand trade and how trade works. He thinks that if you have a, if, if a country has a surplus with you, 
that means they're taking their money. If you've got a hundred billion dollar surplus with China, um, you know, they, or a deficit with China, that means that you're giving China a hundred billion dollars every year. Um, that's how unsophisticated his thinking is on uh, on economics. And he also um, seems to view it in, in sort of highly personalized terms, right? So a tariff is a slight. Um, and removing a tariff is, you know, friendly, and it's it's entirely infantile, as you say. Yeah, right. But it's also based upon no understanding of economics, no curiosity, no willingness to learn. So he um, is starting a trade war with his allies, which is going to cost a lot of people a lot of money. I mean, he thinks that when you put a tariff, slap a tariff on Canadian goods, that that's it's certainly going to hurt the Canadians because they're goods are going to be more expensive and so they are going to sell uh, fewer goods. But the reason the, the additional amount of money that's going to be paid for those goods comes out of American pockets. I mean, a tariff is like a tax. Mm. It's something that you put on top. He doesn't, he doesn't understand that. You know, he thinks that it's only um, hurting your competitors, but it's hurting the American consumer as well. And if we look at Iran, Philip, um, I mean, what, what does that mean? South Africa has walked quite a um, careful diplomatic line with Iran and has tried to maintain friendly relations there. And I imagine that now the U.S. reimposing unilateral sanctions is going to make life difficult for South African businesses. I mean, we have South African businesses present in Iran. Isn't MTN there? Yeah, yep. and a bunch of others. Yeah, yeah. Um, look, on the oil issue. I mean, South Africa was a big importer from Iran. And after uh, Obama brought in sanctioned or the actual UN sanctioned Iran uh, back in 2015, um, I think that South African imports went to almost zero. Now, I think the figures as of the end of last year were, they were back up to about 7% of South Africa's imports. I mean, South Africa imports most of its oil from Nigeria, Angola, and Saudi Arabia now. And I'm not sure if that 7% figure has moved up. So it's, it's not going to be a huge issue for, for South Africa. I think there's a bigger sort of global uh, confrontation coming. And that is, as far as the Europeans are concerned, um, America, the United States has violated the accord. The United States pulled out uh, without a pretext, without a reason, without a justification. And uh, if the United States is going to go back in and tell European powers, well, you've got to impose sanctions against Iran. They will be doing it on the basis of, you know, basis of being a bully rather than any kind of legitimate, um, rational argument, which they might have mounted at the time when they, the sanctions were first introduced. Yeah, I mean, the Americans pulling out of a major deal, as you say, on a flimsy pretext, it raises the question of how they will have any credibility going forward in, in deals uh, varying from North Korea to trade deals, etc. Jacob Zuma and Trump have another thing in common, which seems to be a huge admiration and affection and a lot of time for Vladimir Putin. We've done a previous podcast on Zuma's links with, with Putin and, and the ANC's history with the USSR and the apartheid years. But there isn't such a ex simple explanation for Trump's love affair. Why does Trump love Russia so much? Well, I think you've got to go back to his business dealings. Um, Trump's a real estate guy, and um, he went bankrupt. I think he went bankrupt about six or seven times. Uh, and there have been times when he's really struggled to get money into his, into his uh, businesses. Now, that sort of coincided with the sort of period from the 90s onwards when 
massive amounts of uh, money was floating around the former Soviet Union, um, essentially from uh, criminal enterprise and from all kinds of uh, shenanigans involving privatization. And these oligarchs had to find ways of legitimating their money and laundering it into the Western financial systems. I must say London really opened its doors and uh, a lot of London is now owned by oligarchs, um, you know, because that's the go-to thing. You go to real estate. So Trump has this long history of um, connect connectivity, not only with oligarchs, but with um, some of the most um, criminal of them, among them. And I think the other thing to understand is that when we talk about oligarchs and we talk about, you know, the, the, uh, the state in the, Krem the Kremlin um, and Russia as it is today, we're not talking about, you know, a proper state. We're talking about a, a criminal enterprise in itself. You know, no oligarch can move their money around out of Russia unless they are firmly in cahoots with the intelligence agencies. So the FSB, the oligarchs and the Kremlin are really at one. So the, the attack that was launched on American democracy in 2016, which Trump hailed, was very much a, um, uh, you know, was, was actually, I think, fairly successful in that it managed to sort of amplify stuff that was happening anyway. And the, they used WikiLeaks as, as a, uh, an instrument and a means of getting it out. But they were playing into a pre-existing um, Trump kind of demeanor, which was well disposed to Putin. Now, I don't know about the compromat. Obviously, you've seen the reports about um, that about the P tape and about that Putin has something on Trump, uh, and that's very possible. But I think that uh, you don't need that as an explanation as to why as to why Trump feels you know very affectionate uh, towards Russia, because I think that Russia has essentially helped his business. And actually kept it going in the uh, through the last decade and a half. So massive injections of cash into a real estate business, which is essentially a money laundering vehicle for these oligarchs. Exactly, and that money laundering done with the knowledge and the supervision of the Kremlin. It beggars belief, you know. Jim Comey, in his um, that's the former director of the FBI, for our listeners who Trump fired, you know, he said he was really struck by the fact that. Trump would never criticize Putin, even in private, um, even when presented with evidence of, of um, interference in elections and intelligence. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. You just, just, I don't even wait. Hey, when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab them by the pussy. You can do anything. This is a person who said that he, you know, is completely entitled to grab the, the pussy of, you know, any woman walking by. He, we know that he paid off a porn star to um, stay quiet about affairs she had. He, he throws almost literally a hissy fit at the G7. He's attacked his allies. He ha has hurled abuse at the press. It just, as our representative in Washington, D.C., Philip, how did this reality TV star become the president of the United States? How is this possible? And what does it say about the state of America? Well, I think it's extraordinary and, and very depressing. And what's, uh, you know, I think that ultimately, if you look at the, the sort of longer wave development of, of politics in the United States, what has happened is the, the Republican base has um, solidified and um, even now, when Trump does these, you know, daily kind of uh, 
behaves in a manner that no president would have in the past, um, you know, chucks out um, the kind of norms and, uh, you know, basically maltreats immigrants at the border, picks fights with our allies, makes uh, disgusting attacks on his political opponent, lies constantly. 40% of the United States of the population supports him. 42%, I think, is his latest approval rating. And I think that you have to go back a little ways to the, uh, I guess, to the Nixon, you know, Southern strategy, a strategy where the Republican Party believed that its future lay with uh, recruiting, becoming really the party of white people. Um, that was kind of always latent. It was certainly there were a lot of dog whistles. Reagan did it. Even uh, George H.W. Bush did it. Rove did it. Um, but not to the extent that it became the, 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 let's put it this way, the ideology of the Republican Party after Obama was elected. And the Tea Party, which was supposedly an organization that was set up to oppose taxes, um, was actually a rabid um, response to having a black man as president. And this kind of emerging white nationalism that we saw over decades suddenly kind of started to solidify into a political movement. And if you look at the kind of differences, um, for instance, in the media world in 2016 from what it had been decades before, you've got Fox News, you've got um, right-wing talk radio, you've got uh, all these kind of blogs, and, and you've got uh, an entire kind of ecosystem of um, information in which large numbers of people in the United States can have a, exist in a completely different factual universe from the rest of the world. Now, they're not the majority by any means. At no point has Trump had a majority of approval ratings in the United States, but it's a significant minority, and it's a very mobilized minority, and it's, a, it's a, like also sort of fed by the kind of uh, evangelical, the white evangelical churches uh, have become some of the strongest supporters of Trump. So it's a, it's a much deeper um, and a systemic American political movement that we've seen. And the, 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 the fight to defeat it is precisely by a very opposite division of what the United States should be. And it's being fought by African-Americans, Hispanics, women, uh, kids who are sort of taking up the, 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 the mantle of, you know, opposing the National Rifle Association and the gun violence. Um, so, you know, you've got a, essentially two very, you've got a very tribalized political system in which an older, largely male, largely non-college educated um, white group opposes, I guess, just about everybody else. So it's, it's a fundamental battle, which the United States hadn't really experienced since the Civil War, in a way, because you know, there were always kind of moderates or progressives in the Republican Party, and there were kind of white racists in the South in the Democratic Party. So this um, ideological divide, which ultimately breaks down into a kind of racial divide as well, um, is not something that we've really experienced before or not for a long time in the United States. But maybe it's healthy for America to finally have some really honest conversations. I mean, we come from the land of, I feel we have nothing but honest conversations about race in our public discourse all day, every day, which is both a, a blessing but can be slightly exhausting to exist in. But maybe it is about time that America have a, an honest conversation about race. And 
It does strike me that there has been this extraordinary conversation between America and South Africa in the last four or five years about race. I'm thinking specifically about exchanges between U.S. academics and South African academics on Black Lives Matter. There was that almost sort of mirroring effect with the fees must fall, or specifically the roads must fall, attack on statues that represented a white supremacist history. And then we saw sort of mirror protests in the States around Confederate statues. Are you aware of that sort of conversation between post-apartheid South Africa and, and the moment in the States right now on race? Yeah, I'm certainly aware of it. Um, and, you know, there are huge similarities between South Africa and the United States and our history. Um, and, you know, that's, it's, it's very interesting. And I think Americans can, can learn a lot from South Africa. And I think South Africans can learn a lot from the United States. I do think that one of the big differences is like, on the statue issue is that, you know, Cecil Rhodes, you know, who gives a toss? You know, he doesn't really, um, you know, kind of represent anything you know, he was a British imperialist, and he's, like, very much lost in the kind of list of history. But the bringing that statue down was a kind of, was, a, was, was, you know, kind of a very formidable protest. General Lee represents a complete mythological belief in um, what really happened in American history. And the challenge to that statue, what that statue represents, which is, which is still kind of ongoing today is a challenge to the very narrative of American history. Let me give you one example. You know, we've got books coming out about um, slavery in the 19th century. Now, the assumption up until now has been that, you know, slavery was something that um, was rural and backward. The Northerners went to war against the South and agrarian society and defeated them, and it would inevitably have faded out anyway. In actual fact, um, Slavery in the 19th century was based on cotton fields, and, they were, and that was based on two things. One, the clearing of the Indians from the deep south and driving them into Oklahoma, and then moving the slaves, you know, mainly from the west, but the slave trade continued, as we know, right up until 1860. Now, what was interest, what's interesting about that is that that cheap labor, cotton, there was no cotton production in, in the United States at the time of the revolution, the end of the 18th century. It only happened in the 19th century. And that cheap labor and that cotton, which was the largest commodity in the world at the time, was what propelled the American Industrial Revolution. So the, the role of Africans and the role of slaves in terms of propelling America into becoming the number one industrial uh. power in the world is huge. And when you suddenly start to realize that, it starts to look very different. Second of all, this idea that the South um, was fighting for states' rights and the war wasn't really about slavery is Wrong. I mean, most of those statues were built, you know, in the 1950s at the time when uh, segregation in the South was being challenged um, by the civil rights movement. So those statues are very much symbols of, hey, of white supremacy. So the battle that is going on and the battle that's still going on is one uh, which is very much um, to do with the kind of administration and the white nationalism that is surrounds Trump is not only a struggle for the historical narrative, but for the historical, but for the narrative of the present and a recognition that white supremacy, and you're right, it's a matter of, let's be honest about it now, because you could always look past, because black people are in a minority in the United States, you could always look past that. You could say, well, you know, we've, we've done away with segregation or done away with Jim Crow. 
And, you know, now it's a matter of, you know, letting everyone just get on with it. In fact, that's not the reality of um, many African-American people in, this, in, in the United States today. So the challenge is around um, building an equal society and a just society, which is not only, you know, it has to do with criminal justice reform, it has to do with education, it has to do with spending money in the cities, it has to do with so much. Um, that's really where the challenge is. And, you know, the whole Republican ideology, I, I know I hate to come back to this, but going back to Reagan, you know, was, you know, we don't want to kind of take taxes away from, you know, rich white people and spend it on, you know, really poor black people in, and poor white people as well, incidentally, um, you know, in the cities, you know, because hell, you know, they didn't work for it and they didn't earn it. And so that sits at the very, at, at the very heart of the division between democratic and republican politics in, in the country today. So you you guys have still got a few years of Trump to go. Um, if I drew one lesson from the Zuma years and the ANC, it's that the will to stay in power means that politicians and, in fact, sometimes voters will... I'm staggered the degree to which they will just not confront or not address the issue. I mean, Zuma seemed at one stage you know, omnipotent and that he would rule forever um, until eventually at the very end there, uh, as perhaps he weakened a bit, the, the ANC moved. Do you think the Republican Party will reflect on what Trump has meant for it? And do you think voters will um, react against Trump or are, are we looking at another sort of six years of this guy? Um, look, I think the Republican Party is now the, the, the party of Donald Trump. So it's Donald Trump and the Republican Party against everybody else. My, I have a feeling 90% chance that in the midterms coming up in November, the Republicans are likely to lose the House. Uh, and they might lose it by quite a big margin, mainly because the Democrats are fighting on issues that matter to people uh, like health care um, and uh, schools and, and things like that. Um, not simply the fact that, you know, 55% of the country really doesn't like Trump. The question then is, once you've got the House, you then control all the investigative communities, you could, committees, and you can, hold the, uh, you can hold the administration to account, and a lot more stuff can come out. Um, but as regards 2020, the presidential election might still be a very close contest, and that's because he starts out with 40 42%. He's going to keep them, no matter what facts emerge, no matter what terrible things he says or does or no matter how he behaves, that base is going to stick with him. So all he needs is another, you know, another five or six percent. Well, he got 46 percent last time to win. So assuming that there are no third party candidates, um, it's not impossible that he could win if the Democrats do something dumb and, you know, put in a candidate who's uh, really not up to it. And that's going to be the struggle the Democrats to find a candidate who can really take on Trump. I mean, I'd like to see, you know, him beaten, not only beaten, but absolutely, you know, destroyed. And unfortunately, he will go down with his party. His party will go down with him. And um, that means that uh, it'll become, you know, California today is like the fifth or sixth largest economy in the world. It's a one-party state. It's well run. It's run by the Democrats. Um, the United States... You know, if if the Republican if Trump goes down as badly as as I hope, they're going to the Republican Party is going to have to rebuild itself, and that might take a long time to do. Um, but still, for the United States to sort of become 
a humane and just and a society where the rule of law is kind of key, again, a, a good international partner, perhaps um, even a better one than they've sometimes been in the past. Um, I think that would be a good thing to happen. The thought that Trump might actually be in power for another six years is just beyond anything. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people, it's like when Kerry lost in 2004, and a lot of people wanted to, you know, fled the country or, you know, there were even a couple of suicides. I can imagine if Trump wins again, uh, there's going to be a lot of very, very um, kind of depressed and, and uh, manically upset people in this country. Well, I, for one, will be extremely drunk on that day. And if by chance that he uh, does lose, the Republicans could perhaps hire Sora Maposa to come and just give them some tips on how to rebuild a ravaged party after a, a corrupt, authoritarian, <laughs> creepy leader. Indeed. I think that uh, um, Cyril can give the United States a lot of lessons in terms of strategic thinking and planning ahead. And, you know, I just hope that South Africa can retake its place as um, a, a spokesman, spokesperson for the African continent. And I think under Cyril, I think that's possible. Um, you know, I think that uh, we've got to navigate the next little while, and there are huge problems internally in South Africa before you can do that. But I think Africa's lacked, lacked somebody to speak for it. Um, I mean, Becky did to a certain extent, Mandela certainly tried, and Bussinger to a certain extent. But I think for a decade or so, Africa's, you know, in the capitals of the world, you know, there are various African leaders, you know, who get welcomed. Um, Bahari, by the way, is the only one I think that's been in to see Trump. Um, but I think it's important that the African continent has a leader or has somebody who is, is regarded, you know, not necessarily with exactly the same standing as Mandela, but somebody who can uh, project the sort of values and the confidence in the, in the future of Africa in a way that it's kind of lacking at the moment. Mm. Philip, last question. For our listeners who would like to learn more about Trump's foreign policy or even his daily sort of shenanigans, are there any websites or resources that you would recommend they look at? Yeah, I think there's, there's a number. Um, there's uh, Talking Points Memo, which is, a, which is Josh Marshall, is very good. I think, you know, there's some very good writers on the Washington Post, I still think. Um, uh, there's Vox, which is, which, which is a good explainer. Uh, particularly for people who don't sort of follow politics all the time. And for people who are more um, kind of focused in on, you know, what the what's happening within politics, there's the Daily Cause, uh, which is very good. I mean, there's a lot of good journalism actually being done at the moment, um, not necessarily the kind of cable television stuff, but, uh, you know, the kind of crisis that's been engendered in the United States by Trump has created some fantastic journalism. So it's, it's out there. Um, and a lot of it is, you know, kind of accessible by Twitter. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's very easy to kind of like follow if you really need to, if you're fascinated or horrified or, you know, by, by the sort of train smash that's happening here. <laughs> Philip Panikak, thank you so much for your time. It was great to talk. I could talk to you for hours about my favorite topic, which is Donald Trump, but I am um, sure you have a full work day ahead, so I'll let you go. Thank you so much. Okay, Jessica. Bye.